This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. be in the middle of our social group, we love to be in the middle of our workplace community, we love to be in the middle of whatever club we join, <clears throat> we love to be in the middle of church, uh, many of us, because we feel that it avoids the, the chill winds of, of not belonging, and I, I spoke a little bit about that over at the uh, carol service that was rescheduled, but actually what hap- what's true for, for groups, uh, what's true for individuals is true for groups, uh, and that we, we want to be at the acceptable centre uh, so, for example, you know, if you're born in Cheltenham, you live in Cheltenham, why would you support Man United? I mean, why would you support Man United anyway? But, you know, you, we feel that there's a sense where you want to join the frustrated crowd of glory hunters that go down to Highbury and watch Arsenal. You know, you prefer to belong to something big and successful. Uh, you know, so I was ask, asking uh, Josh Appel, obviously moved from the Netherlands to here, which football team does he support? And he says, Chelsea. I thought, you've got no connection with Chelsea whatsoever. Why not Leeds? Why not some kind of cold outside? We want to belong to something big and successful, and we find it hard uh, to be a part of something that's on the edge. Uh, Being at the center uh, when it comes to ideas is what sociologists call consensus. Uh, uh, And to be on the center of things uh, where everybody agrees with something, where everyone agrees with you, that's called consensus. Uh, Then there's a little bit outside that where there's kind of legitimate controversial debate where you can debate, do you agree with this or don't you agree with it? But you're not really a weirdo if you have some controversial ideas. And then there's the kind of outside the circle uh, which uh, sociologists called unacceptable deviation. In other words, you're so weird, you're a heretic, you're an outsider, you're a nutcase. And and it's interesting that that, that we we want to be in on the centre uh, 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 sociologically, psychologically, emotionally, we want to be in on the centre. We don't find it easy being in the place of controversial debate. I don't like your behaviour. I don't like what you think. I don't like what you vote. Uh, and we certainly don't want to be the weirdo on the outside. And it's really interesting that, that we can try and position ourselves like these emperor penguins into the centre of the social cons- uh, uh, consensus, but actually that keeps on moving. Um, it's interesting, Damaris is in uh, Bristol, and in the centre of Bristol, there's a statue of a guy called Edward Coulson. Now, it's interesting, this guy, Edward Coulson, uh, if you knew Edward Coulson in the 18th century, this guy was Mr. Acceptable, this was Mr. Do Good, Mr. Philanthropist, Mr. Open the Concert Hall, Open the School, Give Money to Charity. Everybody says, let's build a statue for him. But now, 21st century debate in Bristol is, this guy is an unacceptable character. This guy is a slave trader. This guy is not somebody you should be around. 
Now, that's not a comment on slave trading or not. It's just saying that what happens is that circle called the social consensus moves. Edward Colston was in the middle of the social consensus in the 18th century. Nobody thought it was uh, unacceptable to have slaves, as maybe William Wilberforce on the debating edge saying, look, we should change this. But now, uh, his views are now socially unacceptable. We've moved, uh, the acceptable culture has moved. Now as we start this year, I just want to talk about what it's like to be a Christian with that idea in mind. Because actually what happened, I was born in 1960, just managed to make the 60s, you know, it's probably by three months. If I'd been born three months earlier, it'd be 1959, which would have made me feel super old. Uh, but in 1960, uh, and in 1960, the, sense, the center of the social consensus was church. That church was very much at the center of society. When they built new towns in the 1950s after the war, they'd put church buildings in the middle of the town. They would put a church in terms of the thinking of the people would be acceptable. If you went to church, you were one of the good guys, generally. And that idea, it's called Christendom. The idea where the church was at the center of everything is called Christendom. 16 centuries, the church was at the center. For the first 300 years of Christianity, the church was not at the center. The church was on the edge. Then uh, uh, Emperor Constantine declared that Christianity would be the state religion of the Roman Empire, and Christianity moved into the middle. It moved into the center. It moved into the acceptable place to be, and it was there for 16 centuries. But in the last 50, 60, 100 years, what's happened is the social consensus has moved and Christianity is now outside. That social consensus where it was called Christendom is now called secularism. Secularism is the idea that religion should be excluded from society. Now, in, in the, if you're from the States, uh, and some of you are, in, in one sense, that's a good idea to way to set up your government. Let's set up religion separate from, from, from state so that religion can be expressed freely. So I understand that idea. But this, the idea of secularism here is the sense of, no, we want to push Christianity and faith outside. Secularism sees, sees religion as something irrational and superstitious. Something that modern thinkers are not going to go with. That, that the modern thinkers are going to think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace science and rationality. I'm going to embrace philosophy. But I'm not going to embrace superstition. I'm not going to believe in a God you can't see. I'm not going to believe in a, a God who became man. And, you know, I'm not going to believe in that. that. That's crazy. I'm not going to believe in a God who heals people. I'm not going to believe in God who changes things. It's, it actually doesn't hold true, that, the idea of the, uh, the secular consensus. Because actually, if you do a, a research in the West... Uh, the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to uh, be a Christian. So well done for being here this morning. <laughs> uh, but actually, that's the idea. This idea that actually as society progresses, Christianity and faith will be moved out to the edge. So this morning, uh, in 1990, if you find yourself as a follower of Jesus this morning, then you are outside the circle. If you make comment about some of the things that you believe or some of the things that the Bible states, you'll be open to ridicule or possible vilification. If you make comment in your workplace about this is what I believe as a Christian, you've got to understand you are outside the circle. People are not going to say, yeah, we all agree with that. They're most likely to go, what? So what we're going to do is a five-week series about how do you live in our culture? How do you live uh, ex uh, working as everyday community? So it's a, a series called Everyday Church. Uh, let me wave a little book to you. Uh, this book called Everyday Church. Steve, Tim uh, Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. Tim Chester came and preached here 
uh, uh, last year, I think it was, wrote a book called Everyday Church, and it basically talks about how church is much, much more than Sundays, how church is about community and mission and discipleship and how we do it. And it, this series informs how we're going to do our groups. So the talk I'm doing is like the background and saying, how does that make a difference? Why do we need to do church perhaps differently than we've always done it? And the answer is because we're living in a different kind of world. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the unchanging nature of your gospel. Lord, we understand that we need to do things sometimes differently on the outside, the methods and the modes that we do things. We need to change those and be aware of the culture. But Lord, we say we do believe in an eternal, unseen God. A God who died on the cross as a sacrifice to turn away the judgment of God to set us free and give us life. Lord, it's a crazy message. It's a stumbling block message. But Lord, I pray as we live in this culture, you teach us how to be faithful Christians in the world, making a difference for you. Amen. Okay, so as I said, this this term Christendom was about whether church was the main voice. So the church commanded the the social allegiance of the great and good, the people, the opinion formers. So, you know, it wasn't, nobody said, why on earth are the bishops in the House of Lords? I mean, now people say, why do we have a House of Lords at all? And that's another debate for another time. It's in that contested area. But actually, nobody thought, why should church bishops be in there? If you said, oh, you know, I'm a bishop and I sit in the House of Lords, everyone goes like, what? Why do you sit in the House of Lords? Because it's outside, but the church had a voice. Basically, the church set the consensus, set the ideas. It set the laws. Laws in our nation for 16 centuries were set basically based on Christian ideas of what was right and wrong, what was morally acceptable, what was good and bad, and the church held that position. So it'd be unthinkable 100 years ago for for an English king, a British king, or a British prime minister, or even an American president with their secular... uh, uh, state divide to, to basically say something that was against what the church taught. But it's all flipped, it's all changed. So I don't know if you saw the agony of a guy called Tim Farron uh, as a liberal party leader who was given an absolute torrid time uh, in the last general election because he's a Christian. But hey, he's got a little fish badge there, uh, uh, which uh, was in, actually in Rome. In Roman times, they used to draw a little fish to say, hey, I'm one of that group. I'm one of the Jesus Christ, God's son, saviour, ichthus, that's what it means. I'm one of those. And he, he's a Christian, but yet all, they, all the media wanted to ask him was what? What do you think about homosexuality? That's all they wanted to know. It's interesting, there was a, a new Bishop of London, a, a woman. Uh, uh, again, you can have your views on that. Uh, and the Church of England has its views on that. You know, I think she sounds a great lady. She's on Radio 4, and they're interviewing her, and all they're asking is, what do you think about homosexuality? It's like Bishop of London. It's an important position, whatever you think of the church. And Tim Farron said about, about this position, he said, it's, uh, to be a political leader and a faithful, committed Christian has felt impossible. How do you do that? Lyndon Bowring, who was a Christian lobbyist, says this, the challenge of the growing or increasing secularization of society where Christianity is being squeezed out of our national life is a society that is hostile to Christian truth and practice. If you live as a Christian 
and you live as a faithful Christian, you are going to butt up against the new consensus that Christianity is stupid and foolish, narrow and bigoted. A guy called Stuart Murray wrote a book called After Christendom, and he describes five transitions. I'm just going to throw them to you if you like lists. Um, he talks about these are some of the changes that have happened as church has been moved to the margins. So the first one he talks about is the church has moved from the middle to the margins. In Christendom, the Christian story and Christian churches were central, but now in post-Christendom, they're marginal. Some people have no idea who, who, who the Christian story is, no idea who Jesus is. You can't just say, oh, I know who Jesus is. Some people have no idea. There's a, uh, Stuart Murray in his book says uh, he went to a London comprehensive school talking about Jesus, and um, they, the one kid put his hand up and said, uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, Williams, what, what, why have they given the baby a swear word for their as his name. It's like, it's a true story. Why would you call a baby Jesus? You know, it's a swear word. Why? It shows, it showed him how far Christianity has gone from the middle to the margins. People don't know the story. You can't assume that everybody knows when you say Jesus Christ, who he is. You can't assume that anybody knows anything about it. Because we've moved to the margin. We've moved from the majority to the minority. I mean, you get these statistics occasionally. I think the Daily Mail likes to do it most of all, likes to have shock horror, church attendance down in the UK. You know, and the number of, it's always Church of England that stats. The Church of England stats, there were 1.2 million now in 2000, and now there's only 700,000 Church of England people going to church. It's shock horror. The church is going to die out. We've moved from being the overwhelming majority where people, maybe if they weren't Christians, they were socially Christians. It's acceptable to say you're a Christian. Now we're in the minority. We've gone from belonging to being the outsiders. We felt at home in the culture. The, the culture was shaped around the Christian story, so Christians felt at home. But now what happens is we've been pushed out so that, that we, we feel like outsiders. We feel like we better keep our mouth shut. We better be careful. We're, we're exiles to the culture. We no longer feel we belong. The church has moved from privilege to plurality. It was one voice. The church was one voice. The church's voice was heard loud and clear in political, social debate. Now there's loads of voices. It's a plural society. We live in this multi-faith, multi-voice society. There's not one voice. We've just become one voice among many. Our voices, if you raise your Christian voice, often your voices shout it out. And the church has moved from maintenance to mission in Christendom, the emphasis was on maintaining the church. Let's keep the building nice, let's keep the attendance nice, let's visit people pastorally, make sure everybody's cool. But in the, in the new paradigm, in the new ways, that actually it's got to be mission, that we've got to live out there in a contested environment. Our views are not going to be just accepted. Christians, Christianity is now, uh, uh, Cardinal Reno, I think he's a Catholic, says now, Christ, Christians are now marginalised and increasingly silent minority. And more and more, the great and good, influential people regard the church as regressive, a regressive, harmful force in society, a source of repression and bigotry. That's the opposite of the spirit of inclusion and affirmation that promotes human flourishing. Folks, that's where we live. That's where we live. If you live in Western Europe, it's tougher than here, but the drift is the same. Western Europe now, I would say France is almost completely secular in its outlook. The United Kingdom incre increasingly so. The United States less so, but when I've talked to, to Paul and other guys I know from the States, the drift towards secularism is fast moving. 
The United States catching up with laws that you would think, I couldn't believe that would be passed in the United States 20 years ago. That's the world we live in, guys. So how are we going to do it? What are we going to do? Because you all feel really encouraged now, don't you? But you know that's where you live. But actually, good news is we've been here before, people. The church has been here before. The church has been on the margins before. It started with just a few people in upper room, 120 about us. And actually, it changed the world so that by 300, Constantine is saying, this is the state religion. We've been here before, and I don't accept that, that, that we cannot do it again. I don't accept that we cannot be, uh, move the change, the consensus again. Peter writes this, in the, we're going to dip in and out of one Peter, Peter over the series, not working through verse by verse, but Peter says this, and in the first three verses of the book, one Peter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, exiles, scattered through the provinces of Asia Minor, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter's writing this letter to exiles. Now, some of them might have been actual historical exiles. There may have been people that have been moved out of Jerusalem or more likely moved out of Rome because of what they believed. It's almost like, like we used to do to Australians. You know, if they didn't agree with us, we'd send them to Australia, or so took British people, sent them to Australia. What they do in the Roman Empire, they'd send them to the outlying areas uh, where nobody really wanted, cared where they live. And so he addresses these people. So there may have been geographical exiles, but it's more likely that they were actual, uh, they were actual on the margins of community. That they weren't just exiles because they'd moved geographically, they were exiles because they were moved to the margins of community. Peter wasn't just saying, oh, they were exiles because heaven was their home. Or they were on the edge, kind of metaphorically. That he was saying, no, literally, they were on the edge. What was happening? Uh, Tim Chester put it like this. He says, because of their Christian faith, first century Christians were being marginalized, ostracized, and subject to unfriendly acts by neighbors, alienated in their relationships with employers, and even with, with marriage and family. Basically, if you became a Christian in first century Asia Minor, if you became first Christian in first century Mediterranean Roman world, it was a move to the edge. It was not a socially upward move. It was a move to the edge. Christians at this time, as Peter writes his letter, were experiencing hostility. It hadn't yet become persecution. That was to come later and quite quickly come later. Now, we're not experiencing in this country persecution where you lose your job or, you, you know, or you're sent to prison for believing in Christianity. But you will probably, if you're living a Christian life in some way or other, you will probably have experienced some of the things that, that Peter describes. He says about the, Romans, the Roman world's attitude to Christians, he says, they accuse you of wrongdoing. They accuse you of wrongdoing just because you believe Christian things. They give you slanderous insults. You're subject to the ignorant talk of foolish men who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. I would say if you have raised your voice on some issues, you probably have had some pushback. If you haven't had pushback, maybe you got your head down. But we'll come to that. Okay, I'm going to give uh, quickly then, I'm going to try and run through... How should we react to this world we're in? How should we react to this world we're in? I guess the first one would be, you could say, let's condemn the culture. 
Let's push hard against the removal of aspects of Christendom. It may have been Cheltenham, it might have been somewhere else. But basically what happens is a big for all. Christians are all up in arms in this particular place because they removed prayers from the beginning of the council sessions. Now what should we do about that? Prayers are removed from the beginning of the council sessions. People say it's not Christendom anymore, there's multi-faved up. Believe in God. Why should we have prayers? What should we do about that? I mean, should you go out and protest on the streets? What happens is there's something... If there's something in the media that you don't agree with. So there's a debate about when Prince Charles uh, becomes king. Hold on to your hats, everyone. But when Prince Charles becomes king, he doesn't want a coronation that has anything to do with God in there. He wants a multi-faith coronation. What should we do about that? Should we protest? Should we say, that's wrong? This is a Christian country. What should you do if there's a debate on on the radio about homosexuality? What should you do about that? It's difficult. I don't know how to navigate. And please don't think I'm trying to tell you how you should do it. But I've often found that sometimes when Christians ring up, it's, they get a really hard time. They get a really hard time. It's really hard for them to put a balanced point of view. I think I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to ring up Nikki Campbell on Five Live and make my point of view because I just know the moment you say you're a Christian, his attitude to you changes and he pushes you in a corner. He'll push you in a corner. And he'll ask you some dumb question about, did God kill loads of people in the Old Testament? And it's like, whoa. So what do you do? How do you, how do you react? If there's some discussion about abortion, how do you react? If there's some discussion about an ethical issue, how do you react to that? Should you keep quiet? What if, uh, should you talk to people about hell and wrath and judgment? What do you, those controversial stuff, what do we do with those things? That we've got to understand that if we talk about, about those things, we're, we're going to get pushback. Should we be out on the streets, up and down, placarding with, with things saying, you know, I object, God hates abortionists or whatever. You know, here's, this is a picture, I, I think there's a, a famous church, it's probably, there's one church probably in the States, I, I don't want to caricature the whole, t- but there's a church in, in the southern part of the States that basically just all it does is like to go outside abortion clinics and like, you know, complain about abortion doctors or, you know, vanners, God hates fags, you know, whatever, you're going to go to hell. You know, it, it, excuse me, should we be doing this? But, but we should have a view, right? You should have a view. But you don't want to do it in a way that's just going to bang, it's going to blow. You've got to understand the culture we're in. And it's interesting, it's really difficult to have a reasoned discussion these days. But then it was always difficult to have a reasoned discussion. You know when the church was in charge? If you said, I don't believe in God, what did they do to you? They burn you at the stake. You know, we weren't the kind of liberal, nice people who just said, yeah, interesting, Galileo. You've got an interesting view about God and the universe. Let's just see that. That's an interesting debate. They put him in prison. The ones in the center have always been squashing the debate of ones on the edge. And that's what's happening now. You try and make a reasonable comment with a reasonable good heart, you are not going to get a hearing. Here's, a, here's something that hit the media on, on Boxing Day. Lewis Hamilton, I don't know if you saw this, you know, the racing driver Lewis Hamilton. This is not my view, you can have your own view on, on this issue. This is, I'm not trying to give my view on this issue, I'm, saying, I'm not saying I'm with Lewis Hamilton, I'm just trying to make the point. You make a point, you better be ready for the backlash. Lewis Hamilton has a picture of his nephew wearing a princess dress that he'd been given at Christmas. Lewis Hamilton, wisely understanding the culture, 
uh, takes a video of this and posts it on with him saying, hey, little boys don't wear princess dresses. The point is not that he said that. The point is what happened. The point is what happened. He got people, he got the most foul Twitter storm saying you're an abhorrence. You should do penance, give money to LGBT communities. How dare you be so oppressive? I've suffered that oppression. And I, I, it was like this massive Twitter storm. I, I tweeted this, uh, this blog post by a secular blogger. This is not a Christian. He's just making a comment on how, what it's like to make comment. Uh, it's a two-slide one, but I just thought it's interesting what he says. Uh, I don't agree with any of these guys, this guy's views, although I found this helpful. He's called Brandon O'Neill, and he's on a, a, a blog called Spiked. The very name of the blog tells you it's a little edgy. Um, this is what he says. Hamilton's speech crime, which some in the press have hysterically referred to as horrifying, were to put a little video on Instagram showing him asking his young nephew why he's wearing a princess dress. Hamilton teasingly says, boys don't wear princess dresses. And with that, uh, says O'Neill, the Twitterati and the commentarati went into full medieval mode. Cue fire and fury and demands that he retract and repent, raging against Hamilton as if he was some devilish figure come to warp the mind and corrupt the soul. Hamilton forgot, says O'Neill, that in an era where full-grown men are cheered for by the press for winning the right to use teenage changing room uh, in Topshop, or where institutions across the land are throwing their ladies loose open to bloke, blokes in skirts, you're forbidden from saying anything that suggests there might be two sexes. There might, just might be some differences between them. Then, says this blogger, we've descended into the swamp of relativistic thinking that now even to say you're a boy and should wear boys' clothes is to invite damnation upon yourself. Whatever you think about the boys' clothes thing, the response should tell you this is the world we're in. You know, if, if guys wear princess dresses to have fun in, you know, I, I don't think we're going to placard the streets about that one, are we? God first? No, we're not. But the response is interesting. Imagine if he'd said something that I think is more controversial. I think that's kind of on the debatable bandwidth, or at least it was two years ago. It's not now. It's now on the outside, the weird. Imagine if he'd said something more controversial. We need to be really, really careful about if we're going to confront culture, how do we do it? What do we say? You should have thought what your response is if somebody says to you, well, what do you believe about transgender issues? You should have thought that. It's no good running and saying, Howard, what do you think? Tell me what to think. You should know that because you live out there. And you should know what to say. You should have thought it through. Peter gives some interesting helps on how do you present ideas that are unacceptable or society finds abhorrent. He says this, verses from... Uh, 1 Peter says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. I mean, that's what happened with Hamilton. He does something that people find insulting and he gets insulted. Don't do that. On the contrary, he says, Christians, repay evil with blessing because it is this, it's to this you were called to inherit a blessing. Do not fear their threats. Oh, don't be frightened. He's saying you've got to say your thing carefully, wisely. Don't, don't fear. Don't just shut up. But in your hearts, intensely honor Christ Jesus as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer 
to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. That means you've got to be prepared. What do you think about that? It's no good taking the fifth and saying, sorry, I don't want to offend you. You need to find a way. How are you going to start that conversation in your workplace? You need to be prepared. But do it with gentleness and respect. Standing outside, burn them, burn them. Do it with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that you do not speak maliciously, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of your slander. You need to be, we'll come on to this, but you need to be such a brilliant person around to work with that if you have a view that's controversial or unacceptable because of your Christian faith, you should know how to present that carefully, wisely, and gently. And they should respect you so much that they go, that's interesting. That's what he's saying. But shouting and placarding and bannering on this edge of culture is not going to get it done, is it? It's not going to get it done. We need to find another way. Maybe the second response should be that we just compromise with the culture. If we don't confront the culture, maybe we should compromise with the culture. I think it's not so difficult for churches like ours that have got no kind of history. We were never in the middle. God first was never in the middle. We were never the acceptable church to be a part of. You know, I never got, I'm not an official church. When we tried to get Christopher in and say, look, you know, are we an official church? They say, you can come in as a minister of religion, but we're not an official church. You know, that we're not an established church. We're not one of those from Christendom. The government stopped recognizing churches in 1904. We haven't, and no churches have officially been recognized since then. So we can get the charity status and we can get that, but we're, we're not official. But some of the churches that have, have been official, I've found it really cold. Tim Chester says, particularly the Catholic Church, uh, uh, you know, they, they've, they've kind of stood strong and they've kind of been, well, we'll just do our own thing. But the Anglican Church have found it really difficult as these social winds have blown in. How do you respond? And if you look at what they do, they'll, every time they get together, there's a debate. Should we have this? What do we believe about this and this? What, you know, and it's basically framed in the culture says this, the Bible sort of says this, what we're going to do. The some will say, hang the culture and just believe the Bible. Some say, quietly, hang the Bible, let's believe the culture. What are we going to do? How do we do, how do we walk through that? Should we compromise so we feel comfortable? Should we say, it's really cold on the edge here, I'm just going to work my way like an emperor penguin back into the middle. We've got to be careful if we compromise. Yeah, I'll read it. Compromising the gospel into a Christianity reshaped for contemporary tastes will lead to no gospel at all. If you change the gospel and keep changing it and keep changing it until everyone's society goes, I love this, you end up with no story at all. Os Guinness says, a Christianity that seeks to be culturally relevant by losing uh, the gospel ironically becomes irrelevant. You get that? One or two going, yeah, oh, is this too heavy for you? It feels like a seminar, but it should. I'm trying to get you to think about the world you're in. It's difficult. You can't ditch it because what do you do? Peter kind of addresses this. He says, you've been born again through the living, enduring word of God. All people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
Public opinion changes, changes, changes. You cannot change public opinion because it's always changing. You, you, you just say, well, ditch the Bible on this. They're asking you to ditch the Bible on that. What are you going to do? It's always changing. You've got to say, I'm going to hold on to the word of God and understand my culture. It's not we're going to hold on to the word of God and hang the culture. We're going to say, we're going to hold on to the word of God and we're going to try and say, how does this great story relate to that community? That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Matthew Paris, uh, who's an atheist homosexual, so he's not, um, he's definitely in the middle of the circle, commenting on what it's like to be on the outside, on the tendency of Christians to compromise with culture, says this, it's a great quote, 2003, but still relevant. It is time that convinced Christians stopped trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age and understood that if one thing comes clearly through every account we have of Jesus' teachings, it's that his followers are, urged not, are, are not urged to accommodate themselves to their age, but to the mind of God. Inclusive, modern, or sensible Christianity is inching its way up a theological cul-de-sac. The church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. Now he's trying to back Christian church into a corner by saying, actually, you are irrelevant. But the point is, we just can't keep chasing. We just can't keep chasing the culture. Sooner or later, we've got to say, this is what we believe. And that doesn't mean we're going to placard or banner or bomb, but we say we're not going to compromise. We're going to understand what's really important. So, so there's certain things you can compromise on. So I remember in, when I was a kid, Methodist Church, uh, they had an organ, like an, a big pipe organ at the front. And like, I remember one time that the, the, the minister said, should we stop the pipe organ and have a guitars? Oh, my word. You could, it was, we got more, they got more flack for doing that than saying Jesus Christ maybe wasn't divine. Because I think they kind of said that off and on and no one batted an eyelid. But you say, hey, we're going to get rid of the organ. I'm going to have a guitar. Everyone's like, whoa, this, we're abandoning biblical Christianity. <laughs> you been there? You know that? We need to understand what are we holding on to and what we're getting rid of. You know, do I have to wear a dog collar and a dress? We need to know what's relevant and what we're fighting for and what we're not. But, we, but understand, guys, there's a fight. We live in a contested space. Sometimes we don't compromise theologically by taking those big theological things out of the way. You know, sometimes our compromise is just that we just consume the culture. We just kind of blend in. We're just kind of no difference from anybody else. We understand that there's a culture that's very different from ours, but we can just stand outside, but we're just going to think, well, actually, it's a little too scary out here. I'm just going to move my way gently into the middle. Ah, yeah, I'm going to be a Christian, but you know what my diary is going to say? What my video library, what my bank balance what my mouth, what, what, what the things I look at, the things I say, where I spend my money, what they're going to say is, I'm just no different from anyone else. I'm just part of the culture. I'll come on a Sunday, but you know, rest of the time, you can't spot me. I am the human chameleon. I am blended in with the culture. You know, there's a, when you're around, nobody knows you're a Christian because you just blend in. You drink and say and watch and do whatever. You just blend it in. Now that's a little cosier because you don't feel the cold winds of secularism biting at you. 
but it's not the place we should be. We need to be in there, but not blended. Peter says this, 1 Peter uh, 1.13 says, with minds that are alert. In other words, guys, you've got to be on it, thinking about how you live, not just drifting through, going with the flow. Think, and fully sober. Set your hope on the grace that's brought to you when Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ is revealed is coming. As obedient children, do not conform, don't consume, don't blend in to the evil desires when you lived in ignorance. In other words, when you didn't believe the gospel. But just as he who, is holy, he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. What does it mean to be holy? Distinct. It just means be distinct. The Old Testament story is about, about saying, be distinct. Israel, be distinct. The thing is, they saw being distinct as, well, we don't have anything to do with anybody else. Maybe that's the next response. We think the way to be distinct is we're going to close ranks. I am really landing here. I, I, I feel most of you with me. It's to close ranks. You know, it's really cold out there to be a Christian in your workplace. If you're the only Christian in your workplace, if you're the only Christian in your college course, if you're the only Christian on your street and neighborhood, it's kind of cold out there. So you know what you want to do is you want to huddle. You want to close ranks and huddle. And who are the people you're going to huddle with? Christians. Hey, isn't it lovely to huddle with Christians? They're so nice. You know, you move from The Hague and immediately you've got friends who invite you around for dinner and they love you and they say your kids are great. You know, it's great. We can, isn't it nice? Being, it's nice being a Christian, isn't it? Because when you get to be friends with nice people. You get to hang together. You get, it's lovely. And one of the things that I, as I'm preparing this, I, I'm not speaking this to you, I'm speaking it to myself. Christians can love to focus on building loving community that shelter us from the cold winds of secularism. We can have our Sunday meetings, our midweek Bible studies. We can approve our worship experiences. We can have better, become better at raising our kids and doing marriage, but never, ever pop out of the huddle to the world out there. That was the church I grew up in. If you, if you went to the pub, my mom thought I was a sinner. I mean, I was. I am. <laughs> but, you know, the, the very thought that you would step outside of the Christian huddle... To live out there was like shocking. And you know, we can kid ourselves God first. And I, 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 you know, I've, I've, had time, I've obviously had too much time to think. This is what happens over the Christmas holidays when I'm not on. But when I come back from sabbatical, it's going to be really tough for you guys because I've had three months to think. We'll just have a whole day sermon. Now, Tim Chester says this. We can feel we're making a difference, can't we? We can feel God first is making a difference because we attract Christians from, from other churches or new to town. It's lovely. You know, it's great to have you. Tim Chester says this, and I think, don't do that. The last line in this quote is like an electric shock. Tim Chester writes, despite a fall in church attendance, 40% of Christians think their church is growing. It may be that many churches are growing through transfer growth. A declining number of Christians are consolidating into growing churches. Why? We just want to be in a big church because it feels successful and warm against that cold world out there. It's still possible to grow a church by offering a better church experience than other churches. This may be a valid endeavor, but it's vital for us to realize that this is not evangelistic growth. We're not changing the culture. One scrap. 
it's possible to plant a church and see it grow without ever doing mission. We've done well, God first, and we've grown. But we have to do this. We have to get out and engage with the culture. We must. So we're changing groups because not because we don't want you to have community. Not because we don't want you to cuddle together and enjoy Bible times together or meals together. But sooner or later, God first, we've got to understand that we live in a world where we've got to change the culture. I've put it there as a begging. I'm on my knees. God first must put reaching out with the gospel of Jesus to those beyond the church at the heart of our midweek communities. If we don't, why bother? Why don't we just all go to Trinity? It's big and it's cuddly and it's warm and it's friendly. No one's going to give you... I'm not being mean about them. I know the guy's great. No one's going to give you a hard time. And we're all going to feel, yeah, we're doing great. I'm not saying they're not. But it's easy in the big church, isn't it? A good thing in another church down the road. And as we get bigger, it's easy to think, man, we're on it. But if we don't do mission to this world in a way that's culturally comprehensible, in other words, we understand where we're in, and biblically faithful, then we may as well pack in, because that's what we're here for. That is the, the main thing. We're here to love Jesus, but we're here to say, isn't the gospel of Jesus amazing? I would love the nation to turn. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great? Terry Virgo, who's a, a, an old guy, he's in his 70s old, he's now thinking, I still want the nation to turn. Over his 70-odd years of his life, he's seen Christianity drift to the margins. Or the margins drift and leave Christianity awash. But he still believes it can be different. And we have to do it. But it's going to cost us. And we're going to talk next week about it costs you. We're going to talk next week about mission and say it costs you because these guys were persecuted because they put their hand up and said, I want to live differently. They were slandered and abused and they had a hard time. I find it so easy for me to just sit in front of the TV. I've had a few evenings free over the, over the period, Christmas period, and I feel bad. I feel bad that I've just sat and watched and wasted my time. I feel bad that, you know, that I've just been on my phone just looking at the Leeds United Twitter feed and will we ever sign anyone? And, and it's just a waste of time. There's a big world to win, 2018. There's not many of us, but that's what we want to do, isn't it? Let me finish with this. Peter's exhortation to first century Christians that who, like us, were on the margins of society is this. Dear friends, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, he used that term all the way through, strangers, foreigners, exiles, people on the edge, to abstain from sinful desires. Don't compromise with the culture. Don't consume the culture, which wage war against your soul. You know, sinful desires, they're not doing any damage to anybody but you. You know, when you sin, you just feel far from God. You, you lose your time with God. Your Bible gets unused. You feel guilty. You go through the motions. Live, God first. Howard, please. Live such good lives among the pagans, among the secular culture, that though they accuse you of wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. For it's God's will 
but by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That's what we want to do. We want to follow Jesus. Our shared, God-filled lives together are to be so attractive that although people may disagree with us, and even the wider culture may be hostile to us, when people meet us up close, they are ashamed of their slander, and their ignorant talk begins to be filled out with, with the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We, the Christian community, are how people in the secular culture understand the gospel. We're the word made flesh. We're following Jesus. We're following Jesus. He's the word made flesh. He didn't stand in heaven and shout, you sinners. He didn't blend in with the world, but he came and became part of us. He lived amongst us. He lived a life that was radically different, but incredibly attractive. It cost him abuse and slander. It cost him crucifixion. His body was broken. He's taken outside. It says in Hebrews, Jesus was taken outside the city wall. He was like taken outside of that close and safe space. And they crucified him there. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us go with him outside the camp that we might share his glory. We are outside the camp. We need to live out there as changing the world. The way you're going to do it is you're going to live like he did. You're going to take up your cross daily. You're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what it costs. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live different. My life's going to be so attractive that people are going to say, you know, there's something about you. I'm going to understand what I say and do it, and I'm going to reason my arguments where people say, that's interesting. And we believe we're going to change the world. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.